Scripture reading this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 40, reading verse 1 to 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says our God, your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare, warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, says to the cities of Judah. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. And this is the word of the Lord. Good morning, both online and here in person. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence with us, triune God. Help us to hear what you want to say to us, to understand at a deeper level your love, your comfort, and also to understand our response to your word, to your love. Come, Holy Spirit, and touch each one of us in the way you want to work, because you know each of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I share, I want to acknowledge that <clears throat> I was given some of the exegetical work that Pastor Marvin did on this passage, and I have incorporated it uh, somewhat into this. This chapter focuses on revealing the vastness of God's character, especially in relation to the expectations of his people. And the first 11 verses focuses especially on comfort, God's comforting love. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah does include comfort and hope, but there's also a strong message of judgment and warning throughout those chapters. Chapter 40 on, this tone shifts to being more full of comfort and blessing, full of the glory of God. The historical context of Isaiah 40 is that Israel was facing exile 
due to their disobedience and contemplating God's and contemplated God's distance and dis discipline. When you hear the term God's comforting love, what is your starting point? What are your assumptions when you hear God's comforting love? Your starting perspective. I want us just to take a minute to think about that. Because what our assumptions are impacts how we can listen. And so I just want us to sit in silence together, which I know isn't easy for us. Turn off your phones. <laughs> and let's just allow the Spirit to speak to you about God's comforting love and experiences in your life that might impact this positively or negatively. So let's just be quiet and, and listen and reflect and think about your experiences in your life. I grew up in a church and in a family being taught about God's sovereignty, his holiness, and his love, as well as other attributes. And I think I embraced those and understood those to the degree I could at that age. But especially the aspect of love was impacted by both the church and family, where we never expressed our love. We didn't, my parents didn't say to me, I love you. It was assumed that their provision and their presence was love. And I'm not saying that it's not, but that impacted uh, how I also received God's comforting love. There wasn't it was sort of more grin and bear it when you hurt rather than a, a, a hug of comfort. And so that impacts, and I have needed to deal with that in really understanding at a deeper level God's comforting love for all of us. And that's what I want to hope that we would reflect on. <clears throat> and I'm thankful for that grounding in the positives and God's healing. And I have not experienced 
things that have questioned God's love for me. And I'm so very thankful for that. The more we know about God, his attributes and his love, the bigger they become in our life. And I want to compare it to if you're far away looking at a mountain, it looks quite small, it just looks like a hill. You drive an hour toward that mountain and it looks a little bit bigger. You drive another hour and it looks bigger. And you keep on driving, it gets bigger and bigger. Now, has the mountain grown? No, it's our perspective that has changed. And so likewise, God's love doesn't change, but as we see more of it and experience more of it and get closer to God's love, it can be much bigger in our lives and a very positive bigger. Isaiah introduces four key components in these verses about the love of God and the comforting love of God. First, God's comfort. Second, God's coming or approach to his people. Third, God's communication through his word. And fourth, God's care for his people. Looking at the first two verses, comfort in God's forgiveness. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. God said that to Israel. He says that to us. Because he is a God of comfort. It's one of his attributes. It's who he is. This does not mean that he would remove the exile of the Israelites. They had sinned. That was a consequence. So given comfort doesn't mean the consequence of sin is necessarily removed, or all of them. Certainly our death, spiritual death, is removed. <coughs> the people at the time of Israel probably felt quite distant from God because of this impending. They knew that they were going to be attacked and they had heard the prophecies of exile. And God was saying to them, Yes, all of that is true, but you are still my people, and I will, and I do forgive you. Common, there's also a mention here of that God came double for her sins. Commentaries give different interpretations for that. One of them says it refers to two, two exiles, both the Assyrian and the Roman uh, exile, and coming close to the latter dispersion under the Romans, that then her iniquity would be pardoned. And not as a double punishment, but as an ample punishment for her uh, under the captivity and through Jesus Christ. Another commentary says that the new covenant, it is not we who have received from the Lord's hand double for our sins, but it's the sin-bearing Savior, Jesus Christ, who received the cup of wrath from the Lord's hand. Again, ample for all of our sins. Another says the passage assures forgiveness and declares that the people have received double for their sins. Forgiveness and acceptance is the two elements. Regardless of which commentary might be closer to the truth. 
What is common with all of them is the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins. And that's through Christ. And so that was promised throughout the Old Testament, including in Isaiah 40, promised again and realized through Jesus Christ and is true for each of us today. That as we repent, we can be assured that the Lord's pardon comes with, with him because of Jesus Christ. In verses 3 to 5, it's God's coming for his people. Verse 3 talks about a highway for our God. Where is God going? He's approaching his people. It's him who comes to us, not us who makes the first step. And he was coming, and he wants a straight highway with no obstacles. Talks about the valleys and the hills being changed so that, that there's nothing in the way. <coughs> nothing can stop God from approaching you and I and those around us. And if we examine the life of Jesus, we see the same for him. Nothing stopped people from approaching him if they were willing to approach him. And it was different with the Pharisees. They created many obstacles. They refused to go on the highway that God was building through Jesus Christ. They said, no, we still have 600-some rules and laws that you have to obey in order to get to God. Now, they didn't live all of them themselves, but they insisted that others do, which is part of the hypocrisy we see all around us and that we tend to do ourselves as well if we try to live by rules and laws and regulations. And so we see that that's not the way of God. The way of God is to make straight and to offer it through Jesus but it doesn't stop there. In verse 5, it says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. So who will reveal this glory? Well, it's God himself who will reveal it. It was revealed in the Old Testament in many ways. It was revealed through Jesus Christ in a much larger way. I mean, the, the fullness was there, but we're not living in the fullness because it talks in this passage about all flesh shall see it together. Well, not during the time of Jesus nor today do all flesh see it together. This will come to completion when Jesus returns. And if we're looking for God on the, the straight highway that he has built, putting our faith in Jesus Christ is essential but this highway has the glory of God, which means it's not just I made a decision to follow Jesus Christ and the rest doesn't matter. It's living in that holiness. It's becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ and walking day by day in his ways. The holiness of God cannot stand sin. It needs to be forgiven. And repentance is not just saying sorry. Repentance is saying sorry and changing our ways. Crying out to God for help to change our ways. And not just 
saying sorry today, tomorrow doing the same thing, and tomorrow night saying sorry, and on Tuesday morning doing the same thing, Tuesday night saying sorry, and making no effort to change. That's not walking on the, God, on the holiness, on the road of holiness that God has for us. It doesn't mean beating ourselves up, but it does mean crying out to God to truly change, to allow his spirit to work in us, to change, to walk on this good highway. It's the best way. It's what God offers us as the best way. Verses 6 to 8 talks about the reliability of God's word and its eternity. And these verses make a comparison between humanity's glory and God's word. And it compares humanity, or us as human beings, to grass and flowers. If someone gives you a bouquet of flowers today, will you appreciate it? Will you appreciate the beauty of them? Will you appreciate the beauty of them tomorrow? What about next year? Will you appreciate the beauty of that bouquet of flowers next year? Probably not. Because probably they'll be wilted. You have probably put them in the garbage. And so grass and flowers are not eternal. The grass can grow again in the spring. Doesn't look so great right now, at least here. But there is things that are eternal. God is and God's word. And when we say God's word is eternal, we're not talking about this book as a book, as paper and ink. What's eternal is what's written in it. The words and the concepts and the understanding of, of what those words and concepts means. Earlier, I mentioned our perspective about the size of a mountain. And this verse speaks to us about perspective as well. The perspective of how big and eternal God is and how small we are as people. What should our response be to the everlasting nature of God's word that it talks about in these verses? Well, our response should be to engage with it, to read it, to understand it, and to, to believe it, to live it out. To trust God and his promises in this world, in this word, trust God and his, his attributes as it's described and revealed to us in his word. And also to share it with others. Some of you who know that I serve with Wycliffe Bible Translators may think that I value the Word of God because I serve with Wycliffe Bible Translators. Well, it's actually the opposite. Because I valued the Word of God many years ago, I joined Wycliffe Bible Translators. I wanted to share it with others in a language that they could understand. And through the 25-plus years I've been with Wycliffe, that has grown bigger, my appreciation of the Word of God, both as I have engaged with the Word of God myself, personally and collectively, and also as I've heard stories of the impact it has had 
on other people, coming to know the truth of who God is and the freedom that he offers to people who have either never heard or heard in a language that they really didn't understand who God was and what he was offering and, and his attributes. John Piper, in his book, Reading God's Word Supernaturally, which was on the back table about a month ago and offered to us. I've started reading it. I haven't finished. But he refers to a phrase that this book is all about. Our ultimate goal in reading the Bible is that God's infinite worth and beauty would be exalted in the everlasting white-hot worship of the blood-bought bride of Christ from every people, language, tribe, and nation. And I resonate very much with that. If you haven't read it yourself, it's, this sentence is too in-depth for you just to understand, fully understand it as I'm reading it now. But basically it says, the goal of reading the Bible supernaturally is to see the glory of God from the Bible. And that seeing that, that that brings the glory of God exalted through the church, through your life and through the church, through worship, for every people, every language, everyone throughout the world. we look at the last three verses of our text, verses 9 to 11, it's the voice looking at God's care for his people. It's the voice of an evangelist heralding good news primarily for the people of God. This describes God's might and rulership, emphasizing that his reward is with him. This reward is the relationship between God and his people. When we hear the word reward, in the world, typically, we're thinking of something material. But which one lasts longer, a relationship or something material in this world? Relationships. And I think most of us have heard anyone on their dying bed is thinking about relationships, not about material goods, at least most people. Because that's what matters, is their loved ones, the people they care about. Verse 11 is full of comfort and care. It says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. For the Israelites and for the people of Jesus' time, the symbol of a shepherd and his sheep was very common to them. For most of the people at that either one of those settings, they had a picture of what this would be like. For most of us, we have not been with a shepherd and his sheep. We have not seen that in person. 
many years ago, I did read a book by Philip Keller, who was a shepherd, about uh, Psalm 23. And that helped give me a better picture. But if you, I would encourage you to do a little more research if you have never done research on the relationship between a shepherd and a sheep to understand better the many comparisons that the Bible uses between shepherd and sheep. Uh, there's ele many elements of that relationship that can speak to us about how much God the Father and God the Son care about us and how he cares for that for us. There's also an exhortation in, in these last verses to behold God, not looking at him from a distance, but from close up, so that he becomes bigger in your life. Not that he's someone you meet on Sunday morning, but someone you greet every morning, someone you walk with every day, someone you go to bed with, that he's in your life 24-7. That's what God wants. And if you experience that, that's what you want as well. There is nothing better than being with him and him becoming everything. So do you know that God cares for you sometimes gathering you into his arms, sometimes carrying you, gently leading you. Are you following where he is leading? And are you being still when he's holding you in his bosom? Or are you squirming and looking to get out? I pray that reflecting on this passage has helped you and I to draw closer to God and his comforting love, that it has become larger in your life. Our faith in God's love, God's promises, and his goodness needs to continue to grow. But the Bible also tells us that faith without works is dead in the book of James. And so, as we grow in knowing God's comforting love for us, what impact does that have on your life? What is your response? We need to worship and glorify God from that. But we also need to pour out that love that he gives us to love God and to love our neighbors, to love others. And I want to give an illustration to help us remember that, the importance of God's love impacting our life. Let's say this is you. If this was a bottomless picture of God's love, it would be a better picture, but I couldn't find a bottomless picture. This is God's pouring his love into your life. And he keeps on pouring it in. What happens? Now, if instead you start pouring it into others, then you're sharing God's love, and there's lots more room for God's love to continue being effective in your life. 2 Corinthians 1 tells us, God comforts us so that we can comfort others. 
His word is full of instructions to love one another, as well as his love for us. There is a connection of his love for us and our love for others. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you so, so much for loving us, for your comfort, your comforting love, for your work in each of our lives. But you are a faithful God, forgiving us when we repent, inviting us to join in your mission. Jesus said, to obey my commands. My command is to love one another. Father, help us. Holy Spirit, fill us. Show us how to love one another. And we pray that each of us would do that this Christmas season, this new year, but not only on special occasions, but it would be a lifestyle of love, loving you, receiving your love, and loving others around us. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Why don't we all...